Before we begin, just a quick note. The podcast you're about to listen to was originally published and uploaded last year before last Yom Kippur. So the audio quality is not quite what you're used to, and I apologize for that. Uh, but it still, I think, could be very helpful to have a uh, to learn about the lessons and the themes of Yom Kippur and to make it hopefully more meaningful and inspiring experience. Uh, please enjoy. As always, you can email me, rabbiwalby at gmail.com. And enjoy and Shana Tova. I wanted to talk about the upcoming holiday that we have. We're celebrating, Jews worldwide are celebrating the holiday of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And I want to analyze and discuss and get an overview of the various themes and ideas and lessons of this holiday to try to find a way to maximize its potential. And I think that particularly with regards to Yom Kippur, there's a tremendous challenge that we have in connecting to the day on a positive level. Firstly, as everyone knows, it's a day that we fast. And like most people, you don't like fasting, you're hungry, you're grumpy, you're looking at the clock all the time, you're standing how many pages you have to read, there's very long services, lots of prayer and liturgy, it's difficult to follow. It's a day that there's a very high intensity in uh, our activities in the synagogue, plus we're not eating and not drinking, not used to that, and that, I think, overshadows sometimes the ideas of the days, and also the ideas of the fasting and the prayer, and we lose sight of what the core ideas of the holiday are, and unfortunately, I feel like we miss the core themes of the day, and it's very unfortunate because this is a tremendous day, and when you, if you understand what it's really all about, it'll present everything in an entirely new light. And I think more broadly, when we talk about the high holidays in general, I feel like they're, they're underutilized as assets. We don't realize what golden opportunities we're given every year. If we knew, if we just had a sense of the power of the day and the impact that it can make on our lives, I think that would change a lot of our attitude towards it. But I want to specifically zone in on Yom Kippur. Rosh Hashanah, we just celebrated. It's a day of judgment. It's a day of the creation of man. It's a day of the recreation and opportunity of reinvention of man. Yom Kippur is a little bit of a different day. We're told that on Rosh Hashanah we're judged. And hopefully we're judged favorably and we're acquitted. But if not, then we have the interim days from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur to appeal our judgment. And Yom Kippur is a day of the finalizing, of the sealing of the judgment. In fact, the, the pinnacle of the day of Yom Kippur is Ne'ilah. That's the last prayer. It's the, Yom Kippur is the only day that we have five prayers during the day. And Ne'ilah, the word Ne'ilah means sealing, because this is it. This is the final stamp of the judgment that's going to be our lot for this upcoming year. So on one hand, Yom Kippur is a day that has, that resonates, uh, or that has the feeling of a day of judgment augmented in the form of its sealing. It's, it's, it's the deadline uh, to get our appeals in. On the other hand, Yom Kippur is called a day of atonement. It's a day of, a day of forgiveness. It's a day of mercy. It's a day, as the verse tells us, a very critical verse, 
on this day, on Yom Kippur, the Almighty is going to atone for us. He's going to purify us. Purify us from all our sins. Close to God, we shall become pure. The way the Torah views this day, it's a day of purity, it's a day of purification, it's a day of cleansing, and it's a day of atonement. So what's interesting is that on one hand, it's a day of judgment, or at least it's a, the completion of the judgment that began on, Yom Kir, on Rosh Hashanah. On the other hand, it's a day of atonement. So I wanted to get, give, get a little of the backstory of Yom Kippur. What's the history of this day, and what, what's the significance, and what exactly are we celebrating? As we know, we've mentioned this previously, that Jewish holidays are days where we not only commemorate events of the past, but we relive them. Rosh Hashanah is the birthday of mankind. Man was created in Rosh Hashanah. Man can be recreated in Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is also the day where God's kingdom was inaugurated, and therefore God's kingdom is re-inaugurated anew year after year. New kingdom, new administration, and judgment. So that's the duality of Rosh Hashanah. What is the backstory back of Yom Kippur? What's the history behind this day? And how does that connect to these various themes that we see expressed in the themes and the liturgies and the prayers and the mitzvahs of Yom Kippur? So the story was like this. Jewish people, they leave Egypt. They spend the first 50 days you know, moving around from place to place until finally they end up at Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, the most significant event in all of human history happens. An entire nation is elevated artificially to prophecy. Moses goes up and the people experience prophecy alongside him. It's a day where they start hearing, you know, they hear the Ten Commandments, but start learning the mitzvahs, even though technically they got some mitzvahs beforehand in Mara, but put that aside. They got a few, two or three mitzvahs beforehand in Mara, uh, after they left Egypt, before they got to Sinai. But this is the experience. They had national prophecy, Ten Commandments, experience prophecy along Moses. And then Moses disappears up the mountain, and everyone goes back to the camp, and they're waiting. And we're familiar with the story. Unfortunately, it doesn't go as planned. There's a miscalculation, whatever the story is. We can read about it at the end of Exodus. And unfortunately, on the day that Moshe is... Uh, or at least they, the calculation is that he's supposed to descend, he is nowhere to be found. The people lose it. What's going to be? Moses is gone. We have to find a replacement. And push comes to shove. One thing leads to the next. And they make the golden calf. Now, what the golden calf is, is a big question. Not our topic. But either way, the Almighty is with Moses in heaven, and he tells him, your people, the Jewish people, are messing up terribly, and go find out what's going on. Moses descends from the mountain. He's holding the magical, godly tablets that have the Ten Commandments etched upon them. He goes there and he sees the revelry and sin that it has erupted in the camp. He takes the tablets, smashes them into the ground in front of everyone's eyes. He grinds up the golden calf, puts it in the water, gives everyone to drink, and tries to stop God's wrath. God tells Moshe, I'm going to destroy the people. I'm done with it. I'm fed up with these people. They're a stiff-necked nation. I've, I don't want to do with them. I'm done. I'm done. 
We're going to start a new nation, Jewish people 2.0. Moshe, you're going to be the leader. Everyone else, I'm done with. And this begins a process where Moshe starts praying on their behalf. And eventually, the Almighty accedes to Moshe's request and he forgives the people. And that day is Yom Kippur. The day where the Almighty finally agreed to Moshe's prayers and Moshe's request for acquittal for the Jewish people for a sin that justifiably warranted the, the destruction of the Jewish people was Yom Kippur. The first Yom Kippur in history, what happened? The Jewish people who had been previously judged justifiably based upon the evidence alone, we warranted, we were warranted to be destroyed. The first Yom Kippur in history, the Mayim says, Salah Tikkah I have forgiven as per your words. The Jewish people are forgiven finally for the sin of the golden calf. That day became forever designated as a day of atonement. There is a, a, a spiritual aura that's present on the day of Yom Kippur that was ensconced in the first Yom Kippur in history to be a day that is potent for forgiveness. Forgiveness even on a scale of sin that's unimaginable to us, a sin that warranted a destruction of an entire nation. Thus, every year, we reach Yom Kippur again, and there's a power of atonement in the air. We have to do so little, and we get so much. I want to bring this back to the point we started with earlier. On one hand, we're told the Yom Kippur, like we said, is Day of Atonement. On the other hand, Yom Kippur is still linked back to Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is the Day of Judgment. Yom Kippur is the sealing of the judgment. Now herein lies a tremendous miracle almost, specifically in the day where there is an overabundance of forgiveness and atonement, a day where the worst sins can be wiped clean, that's the day that the Almighty chose to seal our judgment. It's almost as if the day that the, ver- that the jury has to finally deliver a verdict, that's the day when they all are unusually predisposed to acquittal. Think about that power. Think about that. We, our lives, the lives of our kids and our family and our communities are hanging in the balance. What's going to be? And you know what? If you look at our, our behavior, most of us, we have a lot of things that we're not so proud of. Not everything that we did over the past year is admirable. And you know what? When we sin, a sin against God, what is that? That's mutiny. That's treason. God who does so much for us, who created the heaven and the earth, total power over all, he tells us to do a mitzvah, we say no. He tells us not to do a sin, not to transgress, and we say, hmm, God doesn't want me to do it. I'll do it anyhow. Think about that. Think about how liable we are for our behavior. And comes on Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is a day, that's it, this, this, this is the deadline, this is judgment day. What? And who knows what's going to be with us? We're going to be judged. And we're on the hook. And we have to live with the consequences of betrayal against God. It's unbelievable. And specifically on this day, this is the day where the Almighty says, 
I'm going to seal it on this day, the day where atonement is abundant. All you have to do is to make a few small steps and you have atonement. Incredible. In fact, our sages tell us that the secret behind Jewish continuity, the fact that we're still here, all the other nations disappear, right? we're a historical anomaly. All the reasons why nations go extinct have been present by us tenfold, yet we're still around. What is the secret of our success? The Talmud tells us in the book of Sota that nations, the reason why nations actually fail is because of sin. The Almighty says, I have a certain allotment of sin given to nations. When, once they fill up their quota, they're done. And you know what? Our nation also has a quota. And also every year we start sinning. Unfortunately, sadly, we sin against God. And as it gets higher and higher and higher, every year we have Yom Kippur. And Yom Kippur brings us back to zero. Yom Kippur is a day that the Almighty tells us, this is the day to ensure your survival as a nation. All you have to do, repent, and Yom Kippur will do the rest to bring all your sins back to zero, personally, all your sins back to zero collectively as a nation, and that will guarantee our nation another year of survival. Incredibly powerful day that unfortunately, most people are not aware of this power, and therefore we just look at it superficially and say, oh, um, I can't eat, oh my gosh, 20, 24, 26 hours without food, even though I stuff myself and I'm, you know, I have, I, you know, I have plenty of fat stored up to cover it. Uh, and, oh, my, I'm so parched, oh my gosh, it's so difficult. And we lose sight of what the opportunity day is. Now, I want to take this a step further. So, today is a day, not today, Yom Kippur is a day of atonement. How does this atonement work? What, what, what are the mechanics of Yom Kippur that create this opportunity of atonement? So, I read the verse prior. I'm going to read it again. This is, again, the verse that describes Yom Kippur. From Leviticus chapter 16. For on this day, the Almighty will atone for us, will forgive us, to purify us from all our sins. Lifnei Hashem Titaru. Close to God, we shall become pure. We're told that our purification, our atonement, is because we're close to God. What does that mean? So it's a fascinating Talmud. The Talmud says that, well, two Talmuds. Talmud number one says that there's a three-headed monster that is the buffer between us and God. It has multiple names. It's called Yetzirah, evil inclination. causes us to sin, causes us to ignore God, causes us to forget God. We have something called the Satan, not to be confused with Satan, the Christian idea, that's a separate idea. Satan is the spiritual force that takes our sins and utilizes it against us. And lastly, there's what's called the Malachamavis, the angel of death, which is the third cog in this axis of evil that enacts the punishment for our sins. And this is what separates us from God. Says the Talmud in the book of Nadarim. 
Hasatan, the Hebrew word of the Satan, has a gematria, has a numerical value of 364. The power that separates us from God, there's one day that it has no power. It's powerful 365, sorry, 364 days a year, but there's one day that it has no power. And what's that day, says the Talmud? Yom Kippur. Now, how does this work? We like to think of ourselves as being physically oriented or physically dominant. Truth is, we're all going to die. And when we're dead, our body is going to be put in the ground. And best case scenario, we're consumed by maggots. That's the best case scenario, really, for most of us. Uh, so to think of us in only in terms of our body is a little bit mistaken. But also we know that we have a soul. Talmud tells us that a soul is pure and the angels are pure and God's pure. It puts the soul on a pedestal of purity with God and the angels. If we were to isolate our soul, we'd be very close to God. The only reason why our or our life or our identity is distant from God is because we have this three-headed monster, the Satan, the Yetzirah, and the Malach Hamaves, that distances us from God. So essentially, in our soul only, we're close to God. The problem is, is that we don't only have a soul, we have the other forces that are barriers between us and God. But what happens? There's one day where the barriers are removed. And then we are restored back to our natural state of being close to God. It's a day where our soul is unleashed and unsheathed from its enclosure that limits it. That's the meaning of the verse. On this day we're close to God because on this day the thing that makes us distant from God is temporarily removed. So think about that. How do we connect to God throughout the year? Throughout the year, we're fighting a battle against our default state. We have barriers between us and God because our soul cannot connect to its source because there's barriers between it. And we have to try to puncture little holes in the barrier to work against this formidable blockade that's inhibiting our connection to God. So throughout the year, you want to work, you want to come close to God, you want to come great. It's arduous, it's difficult. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta navigate, and you have to be clever, and you have to be crafty, and you have to move slowly. But what happens on Yom Kippur? We're told, and really the high holidays in general, we should call out to God when God is close. Karu bihioso karuv. When is God close? The days of the high holidays. God's close, not because our soul is any different, but because the thing that inhibits our soul, the thing that stands between our soul and God, is removed, or or temporarily removed, or weakened during this time. Think about this example. Imagine you have someone who is in prison without parole, and it's one of those maximum security prisons that there's really no way for them to escape But there's one day a year 
where all the prison doors are left open and the guards leave and everyone can walk out. And you're in prison and you're miserable and it's really tough and it's really uncomfortable and you're not allowed to leave your cell for more than 35 minutes a day and you have to wash the floors. and right? It's really bad. It's a really bad way to live. And what happens? All the guards leave. All the doors are unlocked. You could just walk out. Take your records with you. They'll forget about you. But what do you say? You say, oh, I'm really, I'm really hungry. I want to go to the uh, mess hall to get some chow to take care of my stuff. No! You run! You seize the opportunity! You, you, you accomplish on this day more than the other day because you know what? Nightfall comes and all the barriers are going to be put back in place. Normally, throughout the year, we want to grow. It's like a ladder. You've you got to take one, one rung at a time. You can't skip. In Yom Kippur, we have this little bouncy. We can just jump up as high as we want and change in ways that are not imaginable throughout the rest of the year. The whole year, we have to work against the Yetzirah, against the Satan. There's barriers between us and God. Today, we're close to God. This is the time that God's close. This is the time where we, are, we shall become close to God and purified. Lift Hashem to Torah, become close to God, we shall become pure. And it would be a tremendous loss for us to, to waste this opportunity. Now, I want to connect this idea to the other aspects of Yom Kippur. So on Yom Kippur we fast, which means we don't eat and we don't drink from the eve of Yom Kippur, from before the Kol Nidre till after Ni'ilah and after Ma'arif on the following night. So that would be from Tuesday eve to Wednesday night. It's about 24, 26 hours. Now, normally when we fast, fasting is usually an act of Mourning. Temples destroyed, we fast. Gedalia ben Achikam is killed, we fast. The temple is, or, or the walls of Jerusalem are breached, etc. All the Jewish holidays are usually markers of bad events that happened in the past. We want to note it with the fast day. Yom Kippur is not like that. On Yom Kippur, our status is like that of an angel. An angel is close to God. An angel is spiritual first and doesn't have a physical iteration. On Yom Kippur, the thing that makes us distant from God is temporarily removed. So in a weird way, on Yom Kippur, we, have, we are elevated to the status of angels. Now, do angels need to eat? Do angels need to tend to a physical iteration of themselves? Well, no. On Yom Kippur, we fast not because we're mourning, but because we're demonstrating who we are today. On this day, we're like angels. Just like angels are close to God without any inhibitors, we too are close to God without any inhibitors. Angels don't eat, we don't eat. Angels say a certain prayer. There's a certain angelic prayer that we have to whisper throughout the year. We're told that the prayer of Baruch Shem Fuem Olam that we say after the Shema, after the sentence of the Shema, we whisper it throughout the whole year. There's one day a year that we scream it out loud. That's Yom Kippur. 
their whole year we're steered because we don't want to step on the toes of angels. We don't want to say the angelic prayer. You want to say the prayer? You got to whisper it. But in Yom Kippur, we're like angels. We're part of that fraternity. We can say it as loud as we want. We dress in white to reflect this purity. And that's why we fast. Fasting is not mourning. It's a celebration of our status of this day. And furthermore, this is a day that's the sealing of our judgment. It's a day that we could use as many mitzvot, as many merits as possible. Remember, our status is in the air. Who knows what's going to be with us? So we have a mitzvah, the Torah tells us, a mitzvah to not eat on Yom Kippur. That's a mitzvah in the Torah. So every second of 24, 26 hours of Yom Kippur that we don't eat, that's a mitzvah. So think about this. On the day that we need mitzvahs more than any other, we're given a mitzvah that's very easy. It's not so hard not to eat. Maybe it's a little hard. But what happens when it's hard? The principle that applies everywhere in in Jewish reward and punishment is that as per the pain is the reward. Lefum tzara agra. So let's say there's more pain. And you know what? It's 3 o'clock, 3 p.m. already, and you're done. You're absolutely famished. Your head's hurting. You're so thirsty. You're parched. You feel like you're going to die. So now you're suffering to do a mitzvah? How much more valuable is that? You now, you have to cherish the fact that you have four or five hours of suffering to do a mitzvah that the Almighty tells you to do and to do it in pain. And think about how valuable that is. On a day that you need merits more than any other day, you can have so many merits just from withholding to eat. And what's more? What happens when someone says, it's very hard for me to fast. I, 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 need, I, I need it. and right, this, this, I'll, I'll, I'll pray, but not, not fast. I want to share with you guys what the Talmud says here. This is the Talmud of the book of Yoma. The book of Yoma, the word Yoma means day. It's a book that talks about Yom Kippur. And the reason why it's called Yoma, which means day, is because in the Talmud's understanding, when we never talk about day, there, there's one day that's unlike any other day. That's Yom Kippur. So thus, an appropriate name for the book that talks about Yom Kippur is just Yoma, the day. So at the end of the book, it says like this. It says, someone who sees a seminal emission on Yom Kippur should worry the entire year that they're going to die. What does this mean? So we're told that there's, with, uh, besides for eating and drinking, there's other things that are prohibited on Yom Kippur. To wear leather shoes, to to wash, to put anointments, and lastly, to engage in any sort of marital intimacy. Now, what's the common theme of these five? These are all acts of pleasure, physical pleasure. That's the mitzvahs of the day. Says the Talmud, if someone sees a seminal emission of Yom Kippur, he should worry the entire year. But, let's assume... He's able to outlast the year. 
he should worry he's going to die the whole, that year. But if he doesn't die, he should know that he is someone who will merit Olam Abba. Very strange Talmud. Someone who sees the Samuel Yom Kippur will die, but if he doesn't die, well, he's a really righteous person. What does this mean? So my grandfather used to explain this in a tremendously powerful way. On Yom Kippur, we're being judged. How are we being judged? Who are we? Are we individuals? Or are we part of a collective? Are we part of the Jewish people? Now, if we're being judged as part of the people, well, the Jewish nation as a collective is very powerful because the nation is, not, is more than just the sum of the parts. It's an entity that was founded by Abraham. It has Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Aaron and Joshua. All these are the founding fathers of our nation. And thus, they're part of this judgment as well. And all the great sages that have always lived, and all the great tzaddikim that still are around today, they're all part of this collective. And if we could just join that collective, we're part of, we're, we're judged as part of that collective. But what if someone says, I don't want to be part of the collective? The entire Jewish people are withholding from pleasure? I don't want to withhold from pleasure. So he sees a seminal mission, Yom Kippur. Well, how is he judged then? If he excludes himself from the collective, okay, he wants to be judged as an individual. You want to be judged as an individual, you're probably going to die that year. Do you know why? Because most of us can't withstand the scrutiny of the harsh judgment of our own actions. But if that person survives that year, he should know that he was judged as an individual, yet he merited to be acquitted. It must be he's a special person. Thus, the Talmud makes a lot of sense. But bringing this back to fasting, when we fast in Yom Kippur, we are demonstrating that we want to be part of the collective. If the Jewish people are suffering, we're going to suffer alongside them, and then we'll be judged alongside them. And if we're judged alongside them, we're going, to, we're going to be meritorious in the verdict. And as a general rule, it's a, a, positive, a positive theme or positive initiative on Yom Kippur is to think of ways that you could become more of a public person. Think of ways uh, that you could become a person to whom the general public needs and the more other people are relying on you, the broader your judgment is and the more likely you are to be meritorious. So for example, someone who heads an institution or a family or is a leader in the community, well, if they're taken away, who suffers? Not just them, but all the other people. And the, and the more broad the constituency, so to speak, of someone's responsibility is, well, then the more people have to be judged to suffer this upcoming year, the less likely that that, that that will indeed happen. So the more we're able to make ourselves someone that the public needs, the more likely we are to be someone who is going to, who is going to merit a positive verdict on Yom Kippur. So that's the day. That's Yom Kippur. It's a day of judgment on one hand, 
on atonement, on the other hand, a day of closeness to God, a day of ascension to the level of angels, and indeed a very powerful day that we don't want to lose out. We want to be cleansed from our sins. We want to be close to God. We want to utilize this opportunity. We don't want to stay languishing in the prison, so to speak. But there's a caveat. There's one rule. There's one linchpin that is needed if we want to be part of this day. If we want to have the power of Yom Kippur influence us, we must do tshuva, we must repent. If someone wants to tap into the power of Yom Kippur, but they're not repenting, they don't get it. It doesn't work for them. Now, there, there really is a, a little bit of a subtle question here. Repentance is a general principle in Jewish life. You sin, you repent. And it works all the time. So, if repentance is a principle throughout the year, you sin, you want to fix it, you repent, what's so special about, you, about Yom Kippur? And if we only can have Yom Kippur if we repent, then what do we gain with Yom Kippur? If we repent the whole year, it doesn't help. But if, you, if you're repenting on Yom Kippur, well, then you could have repented the day before Yom Kippur and you've had the same result. So what's going on over here? This is a very significant but very subtle point here. Indeed. The answer is like this. Repentance works throughout the year. But the way repentance works throughout the year is different than the way it works on Yom Kippur. How so? Throughout the year, you do a sin, you have to repent for the sin. You do ten sins, you have to repent for ten sins. And the truth is, if that's the way it works in Yom Kippur, it's likely that many of us did thousands, maybe tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of sins throughout the year. There's so many different areas that we need to work on ourselves. And if Yom Kippur is the deadline... It's very overwhelming. We'll try to fix every single area of our character misdeeds and sins. It's unlikely that in Yom Kippur we can atone for everything. Says the Rambam, Amadis tells us in the laws of repentance, Yom Kippur mechaper lashavim. Yom Kippur has a power of atonement innately within it. But Yom Kippur works for those that are returners. So like this. Throughout the year, you do ten sins, you have to do ten repentances, one for each sin. On Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur itself can provide atonement. Provided that we are a returner. So in our example, if someone does 10 sins. So throughout the year, he has to have 10 repentances, one for each sin. On Yom Kippur, you have to be someone who is considered a repenter, and then Yom Kippur kicks in and repents and atones and cleanses all the sins. Now, how does this work? The way it works is like this. On Yom Kippur... The special power of Yom Kippur is is that if someone starts a process of repentance that could eventually lead to total repentance for all their sins, then 
Yom Kippur will fill in the gaps and provide atonement for everything. So, someone has ten sins. They start a process of, of repenting for all ten sins. They start maybe with sin number one. But there's someone who's, who personally changed into being someone who's now heading in the right direction. They're repenting. They're on the track towards repentance. Even though they don't repent on every sin, and maybe they didn't even touch some of the sins, but they started on the process. Yom Kippur, Mechaper, Lashavim. Yom Kippur provides atonement for repenters, for returners, provided that you are in the realm of a, re- a repenter, a returner, you are included in the magic uh, elixir that is Yom Kippur. Now, repentance really is something very fascinating. And I think we don't really appreciate its value. Now, the Talmud tells us, in the book of Psachen, page 54, that there are seven things that were created before the world. What are these seven things? So, first is Torah, and the second is repentance. Now, what does this mean that, ha- that something is created before the world was created? What it means is, is that it, it doesn't follow the rules of the world. It's supernatural. It, within the framework, within the boundaries of our universe, it really doesn't fit in. Now, why is repentance like that? So I'd like to present it as follows. In our world, if someone does something, that really cannot be undone. There's no way to dial back the clock to make as if something that happened that was negative as if it never happened. Now, if someone does something bad, they can rectify it, they can mend it, they could try to find a way to make the other person the other thing whole, but it's impossible to make as if it never happened. So as an example, if I take a baseball and I smash my neighbor's window, I could pay them for the window, I could sweep up the glass and make sure that no one hurts themselves, I could apologize, but I can't actually take those pieces of glass and put them back together as if it was never cracked. I cannot undo what I did. However, the way atonement works, the way repentance works, is that repentance is magical. It doesn't follow that rules. When someone repents, there's no scar. There's nothing, nothing lingers. It's, not, it's as if it never happened. In fact, the Talmud goes as if to say, if someone repents because they love God, their sins become like mitzvos. Not only does are their sins cleansed away, but those actions are retroactively turned into missiles. Now, how that works is a separate discussion. But either way, that's a, there's, there's a certain supernatural quality that repentance has that we really have to try to you know, think about. It. Like This is an opportunity to undo all the mistakes that we did throughout the year. Now, how do we do that? How do you actually repent? Yom Kippur is a day that we don't want to lose out. We don't want to miss out on the opportunities of the day. But critically, we have to repent. If we don't repent, we, we, we lose it all. We, we gain nothing. Maybe we get something as part of the Jewish people. But generally, we're not going to have any value with uh, the day. So we have to repent. How do you repent? I think this, this, this I think, uh, stymies a lot of people. I want to simplify it. The, 
it's not so hard. There's four steps to repentance. Number one, someone sinned, stop the transgression. Number two, regret what you did. Number three, commit to never do it again. And lastly, confess, vidui. That's part of the prayers. Simple. Don't overcomplicate it. It's not so difficult. Every one of us could do this. We sinned. We sinned against God. That's terrible. It's betrayal. It is treason. It's heresy. We're rejecting God. It's terrible. We got to fix it. Number one, we stop stop doing what we did. Number two, we regret what we did. We commit in our hearts to never do it again. And we confess. And magically, it's as if we never did it again. And you know what? If I repented, the sin is gone. And I commit to never do it again. But what happens? God forbid. God forbid. God forbid. After Yom Kippur, I forget about my commitment. And I reneged upon the commitment. And unfortunately, I fall back into the same pattern of sin. Truth is, the repentance is done. Once I did the repentance and I'm genuine and I'm being sincere during the time of repentance, I really commit to never do it again. The sin is expunged. It's cleansed. It never happened. The the ball was never thrown through the window. We're good. Sin never happened. And if I come to sin again, okay, my Yitzhahara came back, my evil inclination came back, and I fell and I made a mistake. But that does not undo my repentance at the time of the repentance. Now, importantly, repentance only works for sin between man and God. A sin between man and man, Yom Kippur does not atone. We have to ask the person for forgiveness. Now, what does that mean? Unfortunately, a lot of people say, well, I'll just ask for forgiveness. No. What it means is that I have to appease them. I have to humble myself. I have to admit my guilt. And if someone doesn't want to forgive me, I have to go back again and again and bring other people and really do my effort to try to make them whole, to make them feel good and to be sincere. And on the flip side, if someone asks you for forgiveness, you may feel an urge to utilize the power that you have now. You can control their destiny, so to speak, and to be cruel and to withhold forgiveness. Your job is to forgive and to allow yourself to drop this grudge that you have against them. And what's more, the Talmud tells us, the book of Rosh Hashanah, if you forgive others, you'll be forgiven by God. What does this mean? What this means is a very deep idea here. Listen to me now. What happens when I repent? I stop doing what I'm doing. I regret it. I commit to never do it again. And I confess. What story am I telling God? I'm telling God, yes, I sinned. But that was before I made this commitment. Now I'm not going to sin anymore. I regret it. I stopped doing it. I'm a different person. That's the story I'm telling God. And the Almighty buys our story. He believes us. He says, oh, you stopped doing it. 
You committed to never doing it. You regretted it. You even confessed over it. You're a different person. So the fact that some other version of you sinned, so what? That wasn't me. That was my twin, quote unquote. That was someone else. That's why the Maimonides tells us that, we should, that, that, that there is this notion of changing your name when you repent. Because you're a different person. We're a different person. That's the story we're telling God. What happens when someone comes to us and asks us for forgiveness? What story are they telling us? They're telling us the same story. They're saying, yes, I sinned. I did something wrong to you. But that was a different person. I regret it. I commit to never do it again. I stopped doing it. And they came to you. And what do you say? You say, you're cynical. You say, really? This guy changed his ways. I saw him last year saying the same thing. He changed his ways. He didn't change his ways. So if you don't buy the story that your friend tells you, they might say, ah, you don't, you don't buy that? Okay. What happens when you come and try to sell me the same story? Okay, well, listen, I'll be cynical. Like you're cynical. It's precisely tit for tat. The way you accept someone else's uh, pleas for forgiveness, that's exactly the way the Almighty is going to accept your pleas for forgiveness. Now, an interesting insight here. What happens if someone sins, but says, you know what, I'll sin now and I'll repent on Yom Kippur. Says the Talmud, it doesn't work. Why not? Going back to our point. How does repentance actually work? The way it works is by telling God, yes, I sinned, but that was a different person. I'm a different person now. But is he a different person now? If a person sins and says, I'll repent on Yom Kippur, the person who sinned is someone who's saying, I'll repent on Yom Kippur. So it comes along Yom Kippur. It's the same guy. He said, I sinned. He said, I'll repent on Yom Kippur. Now it's Yom Kippur. He's repenting. It's not a different person. Thus, the argument falls flat. Someone who, says, someone who sins and says, I'll repent on Yom Kippur, and then he comes to God and says, I'm a different person. No, no, you're not. At that time, you also said you're going to repent on Yom Kippur, and here you are to repent. You're the same person. Tshuva, repentance, doesn't work. I want to conclude with another theme that we see again and again on the holidays. Another high holidays in Roshana and also on Yom Kippur. Because I think it really unlocks the potential of the day. And that is the, the emphasis on, on death, on our own mortality. One of the highlights of the prayers, Mi Yichiel, Mi Yomus, who will live and who will die, who's going to die, and all these horrible, gruesome, and gory forms of death. We're told as well, the books of the living and the books of the dead are open before them. The righteous go straight to life, the wicked go straight to death. In between, there's the way to Yom Kippur. What is this fascination that we have on Yom Kippur and on Rosh Hashanah as well with the notion of our own mortality, of our own demise? So I, I think that this is a theme of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur because there's tremendous power of contemplation of our own death. How so? Our conflict with our Yetzirah, with our evil inclination, is primarily rooted on a disagreement that our soul and our Yetzirah have. Our soul is always thinking about the big picture. This world versus next world, a sin versus a mitzvah, 
And what do you benefit from sinning? What do you benefit from doing a mitzvah? And the notion of this world being temporary and only a corridor before the next world is the central grounding principle of the soul. Now the Yetzirah, what the Yetzirah tries to sell us is that no, this world is not merely a corridor. This world is an end unto its own. It's not a corridor before some other ballroom. This is the ballroom. This is what matters. If this is what matters, well then you ought to prioritize this existence. And that's the conflict between the Yetzirah and our soul, and really the conflict of our lives. How do you battle with such a foe? Says the Talmud in the book of Brachos. It says a few ways. You fight back with the Yitzharah, you study Torah, you read the Kriya Shema, you read the, uh, the Shema prayers. And lastly, what's the poison pill? What's the greatest weaponry that we have to defeat our Yitzharah? Yaskir lo yomamisa. Remind him of the day of death. Thinking about our death is the antidote to the Yetzirah. All his arguments, the entire worldview that he builds for us, all that comes crumbling down once we realize that we're here temporarily and we're going to die and we're all going to die and that's fact. Once, you th- once you're in the mindset of the fact that here we're temporary... Well, then you think about, oh, if we're here temporary, well, how do I invest towards my permanent existence, not just to my temporary existence? Now, I want want to perhaps suggest that maybe the reason why Yom Kippur is so difficult for us, or at least the notion of contemplation of our own death is difficult for us, is because that opposes our Yetzirah. Our Yetzirah really has really did a number on us, really has dominance over our worldview. And when we think about his absolute nullification, it disturbs us. Why are we so scared of death? People say, well, death is a great unknown. No, it's not unknown. It's very much known. When you die, right away, your body starts to deteriorate, to deteriorate, to, to rot and decompose. They're going to take you, put you in a box, dig a hole, lower you into the hole, cover you with earth. Simple. What's unknown about that? It's very much known. It happens all the time. There's 100,000 people dying every single day. What's unknown about this? The real reason why we're scared of death is because the life that we're living, the life that the Yetzirah creates for us, all that is invalidated by death. Because everything of prioritization of this world comes crashing down with the notion of death. It's terrifying for us. It's terrifying to be told that our life that we're living is totally repudiated. Well, we know it's, it's fact that we're all going to die. But our thoughts, our words, our actions, our life are primarily invested in this world. What happens? Death and the notion of death totally repudiates and invalidates that life. Because what what do you have? What do you benefit from this world and your investments in this world if you're just going to be put into a box and put on the ground? You're totally useless. It's absolutely devastating for us 
to think about what an utter waste of time our life is if we're investing in this world and we think about our death. Indeed, it's, it's terrifying. And thus, death is really the final nail in the coffin, part of the pun, of the illusion that this world is a destination. You think about death, and right away you invalidate the Yetzirah. Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is too powerful, too important a day to miss out. It's a day that we can really unleash our potential. But to do that, we have to be sober. We cannot, we cannot take the misconception or the delusion of our Yetzirah that this world is all we've got and don't worry about God and don't worry about your sins and don't worry about anything else. Just live life to the max here. That notion destroys the power of the day. Therefore, as a tool, we're told in Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur, think about your death. Yeah, and talk about it. It's not comfortable. But why is it not comfortable? It's not comfortable because it's an absolute death knell to the mistaken and disastrous and illusory attitude of our Yetzirah. Yom Kippur is a day... We have to try to set ourselves back in street. We have to become people that are returners, returnees. We have to do tshuva. We have to be repenters. How do you repent? You got to come back to God. You got to go away from the thought of the Yetzirah, the, 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 the idiocy of what he's trying to sell, of this investment in this world that's, that, that's ephemeral, that's ending, that's, that's transient. We're here for 70, 80, 90 years, who knows? Who knows if we'll make it throughout the year? Who knows? How can you know? And the Yetzirah tells us to this, to this is what we should invest in for, to, to the expense of our eternal self? That is a notion we have to banish on Yom Kippur. And one of the themes indeed of the holidays is, uh, is to focus on our own death because that automatically invalidates and destroys and displays the fallacies of the Yetzirah. So in conclusion, Yom Kippur is not a day of misery, it's a day of joy. It's a day we're close to God. A day where the barriers between us and God that are usually so formidable are at their weakest. It's a day that's the end of our judgment, but that also coincides with a day where there's a rush and a power of atonement that's there for the taking. Will we take it? The hope is yes. But to do that, we have to realize that we have to be people that are returnees. We have to start the process towards totally fixing our ways and remembering God and coming back to our roots. I, not me, but the suggestion has been made by our sages to accept upon yourself a small resolution for this new year, something that is small and manageable, but also something that can potentially lead you along this path of total return if you follow all the steps. If one thing leads to the next and you can eventually see how this brings you towards the end, then we could sell God a good story. We say, listen, yes, we're sinners. We sin before you, but we regret that. And we have a plan to fix it all, and here is my resolution. Yes, the resolution doesn't cover everything, but it covers something. It's the, it's the right first step in the right direction, and you could see, perhaps, 
how it could lead towards covering everything, towards perfecting everything. You tell God a story, and that, that's a good argument. Yes, you were a sinner, but who cares? That was someone else, that's not you. And Yom Kippur, you, you are a returner, and the power of Yom Kippur kicks in, and it's as if you, you repented from all your sins, and you are totally cleansed, and you are totally purified. I wish everyone to have a meaningful Yom Kippur, uh, to tap into the tremendous power of this day, to not be bogged down with the small-mindedness of, yeah, it's long, yeah, there's lots of prayers that are in Hebrew that I don't understand, or you know, it's stuffy in the synagogue, or I'm so hungry and I get grumpy and I get irritable and irate. To, to not think about that, or, or to think about that, but to not dwell upon that, to really think about the grand vision of what this day is and utilize it to its purpose. A quick tip for those that are fasting, you start drinking now. Don't wait till it's right before Yom Kippur. All that does is create really long lines to the bathroom by Kol Nidre. Start now, start as early and as often as possible. And I wish everyone to have a wonderful New Year, a positive judgment, total acquittal and repentance, and really to maximize the tremendous power of this day.